If you have a Bible this morning, turn to Nehemiah chapter 6. If you do not have a Bible, then get your smartphone out and uh, get the app. It's on there somewhere. I promise you, you can find it somewhere. And uh, you can find Nehemiah chapter 6. We're going through the book of Nehemiah. We're looking at the leadership qualities. But more than that, we're looking from our standpoint. What does it mean to be a kingdom worker? What does it mean to be a part of the kingdom of God? What does it mean to, be, to take part in what God is doing on, on a day-to-day basis? And to, today we're looking at ask the right question. Is it important to ask the right question? Is that important? Well, I think it's important. I ran across an article this week uh, about a, a, a young man who was an engineer. And in 1973, he asked the right question. His name was Marty Cooper. Anybody here ever heard of Marty Cooper? Not a lot of people. I didn't see any hands going up there. Well, at the time, he was a young engineer at Motorola, and he was given this task. Uh, he, w- he was supposed to lead a design team, and they were going to take the radio car phone. You remember those huge things that said in the car, three, $4,000, big, huge clunk of a thing, and they were going to try to cut the size in half, and he was supposed to develop the next radio car phone, the next big deal. It was 1973. Instead of jumping in, He spent two days thinking about it. And then he asked this question, why is it that when when we want to call and talk to a person, we have to call a place? Why is it that when we want to call and talk to a person, we have to call a place? So in 1973, in the early part of the year, he began working on a thing that he would later call a cell phone. And by the end of the year, Uh, He made the first cell phone call in New York City. He called his rivals at at Bell Labs from the Motorola Foam. It it would later be called the Dynatech 8000X. Uh, They lovingly called it the brick. It was 10 and a half inches long, 6 inches deep. It weighed 2 and a half pounds. You could talk for 20 minutes, and then you only had to recharge it for 10 hours before you could talk again. And I think it was something like 5 or $6 a minute for every minute that you used it. Um, this is what we have today. Because Marty Collins asked the right question. Sometimes it's not just asking the right question. Sometimes it's getting to the question behind the question. We were uh, down in Austin. We were visiting with our daughter and, and son-in-law and their two kids. And uh, Nico, our, our oldest grandson there in that family, came to me and he said, Papa, is cake healthier or ice cream? <laughs> now, the real question he was asking is, can I have cake with my ice cream before I go to bed? That was the real question behind that. And you say, well, that's just kids. Just kids do that. Well, from time to time, I have people ask me this question. Why do bad things happen to Christians? Why do bad things happen to good people? And the real question they're asking is, why does my wife have cancer or my daughter have cancer or my son have cancer? Why does my, my husband or my father have this? Why is there dementia? Why are these diseases here? Those are the real questions. And sometimes when we're asking the right questions, we need to understand that we need to get to the real question. And when you're faced with life's toughest challenges, do you ask the right question? Or or, or are you just looking for answers or are you looking for wisdom? There is a difference. Sometimes you just want an answer why or an answer 
for your prayer or your question, and what you really need is wisdom. And we have this incredible offer given to us. In James chapter 1, we, verse 5, we kind of gloss over this sometimes, but it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Are you asking God the right question? Are you asking him to open a door or to close a door or to guide you or to give you or to do this when what you really need to be asking is, Lord, would you give me wisdom in this situation? Huge difference. We're going to look at that today. Followers of Jesus Christ, those who want to work in the kingdom, those who want to be a part of God's plan, learn to ask God for incredible wisdom as they're walking through this life. Take a look at Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, and and we're going to ask two different ways. The first one is, what should I ask when facing opposition? You're going to come to a time, if you're doing anything difficult, where you're going to have opposition in your life. Look at what it says in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Now stop here for just a second. If you remember where we've come thus far in the first five chapters, Nehemiah is a food taster. He is a wine taster for the king so the king doesn't get poisoned. He's not a, he's not a contractor. He's not a general. He's not a prophet. He's not a priest. He's just an ordinary guy with an ordinary job who feels led by God to do something extraordinary for him. And he gets very passionate about it. He comes in front of the king. The king not only says he can go, but offers to provide all of the funds needed for the the lumber and the timbers and the people. And he sends an armed guard with him, and he sends him off 800 miles from Susa to Jerusalem to rebuild these walls. And when they get there, the the task is a lot more even than than Nehemiah thought. I mean, the rubble was so deep he couldn't get a horse around where he was supposed to go and, and inspect it. But they get started, and these guys, Samballot and Tobiah and Geshem, they keep cropping up. They're, you know, they're just kind of like poison ivy. You've had that, you've killed it, and you think it's gone, and the next thing you know, you itch again because it's back, and that's the way they are. Look at, look at what it says, and he says they want to go to the plains, uh, to a village on the plains of Ono. That's not outside of Reading, that's outside of Joppa. We're going to look at that. Look at what it says, but they were scheming to harm me, So I sent messengers to them with this reply, I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. I'm carrying on this huge project. I can't come right now. Look what he says. Look at the question. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aide to me with the same message and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written. So there's this scroll. It's not sealed. It doesn't have the wax seal on it. So anybody can read it. And if you send it with a messenger in those days, there wasn't a pouch. There wasn't an envelope. He knew he would read it. And this is what the, the scroll said. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true that you and the Jews are planning to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now, this report will get back to the king, so come, 
let us confer together. Wow, you talk about incendiary. That is, uh, he knows if this gets back to Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes will jerk him back to Susa and will behead him without even asking questions. Look at what it says in verse 8. Nehemiah replies, I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. Literally the last part of that in the Hebrew, Hebrew could be a question. Why are you making this up out of your own head? Look at verse 9. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work. They're going to be so nervous they can't hold the, the stones, and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in, in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple, and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. Boy, that's the message you want. Somebody's coming to kill you tonight. Verse 11, but I said, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his, his life? I will not go. Again, get that, ver- that, that question. Should I go into the temple? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He, was, he had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they, could, they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Another prayer. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. Three times, three questions that he asked, and three questions that really are great questions for us. And here's the first question. What great work am I doing? What great work am I doing? If somebody sent you a message today and said, come meet with me, could you say to them, I've got something so important that I can't leave it. What great work am I doing? The Israelites had almost completed the wall. Only the gates are left to be done. And the end is in sight. And these guys come back again and they, and they begin to attack him. And they want him to go to, to this little village on the plain of Ono. It's seven miles southeast of Joppa. I've been by there. I, it, now it's just basically barren. It wasn't much better than that there then. It was basically a cave with a couple of huts by it. And I've been to this place in Israel, and I mean, it's, there's nobody around. Nobody wants to live there. And he says, I want you to meet me. And what does he say? I'm doing a great work. I can't come. I can't go down. Why should the work stop? Now, let me ask you this question. Is it good to, to settle differences? I mean, if you have people that are coming up against you, if you have enemies, isn't it a good deal to try to resolve that? Wouldn't that be a good thing? You know, we call that burying the hatchet. You know what that means? You're going to bury the hatchet between two enemies? Is that a good thing? Absolutely. Is that what they intended? Absolutely not. Sanballat, if Sanballat is going to bury a hatchet, the only place he's going to bury it is in the back of Nehemiah. I mean, he wanted him dead. He wanted him out of the picture. And when he was trying to lure him away, he felt like if he could get the leader away from the organization, from, away from the Israelites, that the thing would fall apart. Sometimes we want to do a good thing when God has a great thing. 
What was Nehemiah's assignment? His assignment was to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. And he was laser-focused on that. And sometimes we, we give up the, the, the great to do the good. Well, what's the great for us? Philippians chapter 1, look at what it says in Philippians 2. It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God has a purpose for you. And good things can distract us from God's great things. Uh, Andy Stanley used this passage. He was preaching from this one Sunday. And a, a young woman by the name of Vicki was there. She had a, a, a daughter that was four years old. And, and the daughter was someone that was near and dear to her heart. And for the last four years, she had backed away from a, a, a huge job. She had a great job with the corporation, paid her a lot of money. It meant that they had to sacrifice. They had to sell their big home and go to a smaller home once her baby was born. And she and her husband gladly did that. And, and she wanted to do the right thing. And, and Andy Andy Stanley was preaching on this and, and, and talking about the fact that they could not come down. I'm doing a great work. I, I cannot come down. And it really touched Vicki's heart. The little daughter, Lindsay, later on as they were having lunch, Vicki was talking to her husband about it, and she said, I feel like I'm doing a great work. And he preached this on Sunday, and on Tuesday, the corporation that she'd been working for before, four years earlier, called her and said, we need you back. You've been gone for four years. We desperately need you. We will pay you. And they offered to double her salary, which was all, already just astronomical. And she got this call on Tuesday, and, and she prayed about it, and she said again to her husband on Wednesday, I feel like I'm doing a great work, and I can't come to them right now. And she knew that her four-year-old was listening, but, you know, Lindsay was four, and you just don't know how much they get it. And it turns out that the next Sunday was Mother's Day. And her dad said, let's go get your mom a Mother's Day card. And, and Lindsay said, I've already made mom her Mother's Day card. And on Mother's Day, she gave her mom a piece of paper that she'd taken, and she'd drawn two hands that were stretched out, reaching to each other, but the fingers didn't touch. And on the front, it says, I'm doing a great work. And when you opened it, the hands were clasped together. And she said, I cannot come down. And Lindsay said, Mom, thank you for being with me. Whoa, for a four-year-old. For a four-year-old to get it. The trouble is a lot of times we don't get it. And it's not about whether you're a stay-at-home mom or not a stay-at-home mom. It's have you found God's purpose for your life and are you fulfilling his purpose? What great work am I doing? Number two, what's the truth? What is the truth? Because Sanballat sends this, this letter out, and, and it's gossip. It's, it's an open letter. It's a scroll. It's no seal. And, and he's being attacked in a different way, and we know it's gossip. How do you know it's gossip? Look at it, look at it again. It's in verse 6. It is reported among the nations. What's the source? People are saying, they're saying, some of the people are saying, I've heard people talk about. Do you ever get reports like that? There's no clear source. If there's no clear source, it's gossip. And, and the only person who's going to back it up is someone who's already part of the gossip ring. It's Geshem, who we, we've already known as his enemy. By the way, from time to time, someone will send me an anonymous letter and I appreciate that. Our shredder at the, at the church loves those things. If I see that it's anonymous, it just gets run through the shredder. I mean, 
We want your feedback. We give you a response card. You're welcome to give us feedback. We would love to hear from you. Just sign your name. We'll keep it, we'll, we'll keep it private. We're not going to spread the word. But if it's anonymous, it doesn't mean much to me. I love a couple of definitions of gossip. Here's one. Gossip is something you must hurry and tell someone before you find out it's not true. A gossip is one who can give you all the details without knowing any of the facts. Can give you all the details without knowing any of the facts. James, a little later on in the book of James, it says that a tongue can start a fire like a wildfire. Do we understand wildfires here in Northern California? We know the devastation, how it can literally burn through a neighborhood, burn down towns, burn homes and, and, and livestock and, and the things that we love. We know how dangerous a little spark can be in a dry wood, and, and we understand his analogy, and that's the way the tongue is. Chuck Swindoll says, I'm personally convinced that the number one enemy of Christian unity is the tongue. It's the tongue. Ephesians 4.29 says it this way, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Many years ago, we were in Amarillo, Texas, and, and you know it was pre-cell phone days. They didn't necessarily have cell phones. If they did, they were big, huge things. But we were in Amarillo, and I walked into a, the house of somebody that was there in the church and, and in a really great leadership position, and posted right there in big letters was this verse, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths right by their phone. And I said, what's going on? And he said, I was convicted a couple of weeks ago about saying something on the phone that I know should not have come out of my mouth. I thought, wow, what a great way to do that, to really think about what's the truth. Nehemiah knew that Artaxerxes would never stand for this. And he just denies the charge. He doesn't spend a lot of emotional energy, doesn't try to go back and, and come back. He doesn't retaliate. He just says, you know this is not true. You know the truth. And then he asks why they made it up. And then he says, strengthen. And literally the word for strengthen there is the same word for taking a piece of metal and putting it under the hottest fire to temper it. Strengthen. Make it like hardened steel. I want you, the Father, to make my hands like hardened steel so I don't give up on the task that you've given me. You know what's ironic? So many times people accuse others of the very thing that they're guilty of. The reason Sanballat said this about Nehemiah is that Sanballat was power hungry. He wanted to be the governor. He was the one who wanted to be in control, and he couldn't stand somebody else doing that. And so he's, he's doing that. Do you know the truth? Do you listen to gossip? Do you, do you know the truth? The Lord said you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And the greatest source of truth is not Fox News. The greatest source of truth is not the Internet. Let me tell you one more time, okay? Listen carefully. Not everything on the Internet is true. Check it out. I, I get illustrations all the time sent to me, and boy, they just sound amazing. And then you go and check it out, and it's amazing because it's not true. Here's the greatest source of truth. God's Word. And we as believers ought to repudiate. We ought to, we ought to destroy that destructive gossip in our midst. What great work am I doing? What's the truth? Here's the third one. What's the right thing to do? 
He, the third thing that, that comes up for Nehemiah is he's tempted by Shemaiah to come in and he says, listen, I'm gonna, I've got a safe haven for you. I know where they can't get you. These guys are going to come kill you. And he's trying to intimidate. I looked up the word intimidate. It means to compel or deter by threat. Do this or else. If you don't do this, you will die. Men are coming to kill you. Fear is a horrible motivator. It really is. Fear is a terrible motivator. I've, I've known people who are fearful, and it's cost them their marriage, their jobs, their finances. Fear is a lousy motivator. Love is so much stronger as a motivator. And yet so many of us live so much of our life in fear. What if I'm not good enough? What if I fail at this? What if, what if, what if, what if there are men coming to get me? If you live all of your life like that, you live in this fear. And John, uh, the Lord says in 1 John, perfect love drives out fear. And so you need to understand what's the right thing to do. Is fear powerful? It can be powerful. Uh, someone asked Adolf Hitler shortly before the fall of the Third Reich, how in the world do you think that you're possibly going to win? America's joined in the battle, and, and, and you have all of this bombing that's going on, and Europe is falling. How can you possibly think that you're going to win this war? And Hitler replied, indecisiveness, mental confusion, panic, and fear are still our greatest weapons. How do we know what's right? How can we get past that fear? How can we know what the right thing to do is? Well, again, he, he, Nehemiah knew God's word. In Numbers chapter 18, 7, it says, Only the priests descended from Levi could enter into the, the holy place. And Shemaiah says when he's using the term temple there, he doesn't mean the temple court. He means the holy place. And Nehemiah knew that he was not descended from Levi. And he knew it was, what does he call it in verse 13? He calls it a sin. He said, why would he tempt me to sin? What's the right thing to do? James, again, in verse four, chapter 4, verse 17 says, anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. What's the wisdom that God would have for us to do? What is the right thing as determined by God every time? That's why we study God's Word. That's why we're going to start next week in the construction zone talking about grace-based parenting and biblical approach to finances and stress fractures, how to take care of the worry and anxiety in your life, and, and even uh, all of this, the Daniel plan. All of these things are important for us to know so we'll know what to do when the right thing comes up. Paul is writing to the Philippian church. He says, this is how important it is. Look at Philippians 4. Finally, brothers. By the way, when a pastor says finally, you know what that means? Not much. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And Nehemiah, when he is attacked, when he hits the opposition, he, he first of all recognizes that he's doing a good work, and he knows what his good work is. The second thing is he knows what is the truth, and he lives by the truth. And the third thing that happens is he does the right thing by not going into the temple. Now let's finish the chapter. What should I ask when I'm facing not opposition but success? What happens when we face not enemies but friends and things are going well? 
Go back to verse 15, uh, Nehemiah 6:15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. 18 miles of wall, 18 miles of stone wall. Some of the towers may have been as high as 50 feet tall in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Even the people who didn't believe in their God realized that this was impossible. Look at the next verse. Does that mean all the attacks are gone? This blows me away. Verse 17. Also in those days the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since, get this, he was connected. He was the son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Era, and his son Jehoanan had married the daughter of Meshulam. He's one of the guys building the wall, the son of Berechiah. So he's connected. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. The wall's completed. The gates are in. It's all done. And so does the opposition go away? Absolutely not. If you believe when you come to Jesus Christ, when you make him your Savior and your Lord and the King of your life, if you believe that all of the opposition in your life is going away, then you're reading a different Bible than I'm reading. Paul had a whole lot more trouble after he came to Christ than before. Peter found what trouble really was after he became the apostle, the disciple that God called him to be. Folks, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Because Satan doesn't really care about you until you're faithfully doing what he's called you to do. And then you're really going to face opposition. So what do we do? There was success here. There was a huge success. And yet there's still opposition. What question should we ask? Number one, what has God done? What has God done? Not, not what, look what we've done. What has God done? We went out to Whiskey Town. Just last week? Was that last week? And six people were baptized. There was a woman who accepted Jesus Christ from the Mian church, from the Mian speaking church just up the hill in the chapel. This woman accepted Jesus Christ as her Savior and she wanted to be baptized. And shortly after she accepted Christ, she had a stroke. She's confined to a wheelchair. And we said, well, we know that we're going to go to Whiskey Town, and we know it would be tough. And she says, I can come in my wheelchair. And we said, well, we know it would be tough for you to get down in the water. And she said, you can just lift the wheelchair into the water. And we said, well, we know it will be tough for you to follow through. And she said, you don't understand. I need to tell the rest of the me and community. I need to tell the rest of the world that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Just because I'm in a wheelchair doesn't matter. And so we literally carried her down to the water in the wheelchair, and she was baptized in her wheelchair. And I was humbled that this woman wanted to let other people know what God had done in her life. Do you understand that? We serve a God who does the impossible. It was no big deal to her because she wanted people to know what God had done in her. There's an archaeological dig that just took place 15 months ago. And in this dig, they have come across part of the wall that Nehemiah worked on. It dates back to the time of Nehemiah. 
At the base, it is 16 and a half feet wide. It is 16 and a half feet wide. And some of the stones that are in, that are in that wall, they estimate to be 150 to 175 pounds. No contractors, no stonemasons, no carpenters, perfume makers, and tax accountants, and, and people who, who worked jobs where their hands never got dirty and callous were the ones who put this together. They didn't think they did this in their own power. They knew God had done this. The reason Nehemiah was not intimidated was he trusted God. He knew what God could do. Listen, folks, when God gives us a project... When God gives us an assignment, quit depending on you. Quit depending on me. Quit depending on your skills. We're getting ready to kick off Awana, and there are going to be kids, I think, come like we've never seen before. And Matt and I were praying the other day. My prayer is by the end of Awana, by the end of the season, that we are going to double the number of kids that are coming to Awana. And Jennifer just went, <gasps> But it's not about what we can handle. It's about what God can do. And if we double the number of kids, my prayer is that every kid that comes will be an unsaved kid who doesn't know Jesus and that somehow in the next nine months that child will hear about Jesus Christ and and God will come into his life and save him and her. Do you understand? 1 John 4, 4 says, You, dear children, are from God. And have overcome them because the one who is in you, overcome them, the them there is those who are opposing the gospel. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Do we serve the king of kings? Oh, that was good. Do we serve the king of kings? Does he have all power? Is he awesome? Can he do everything? Why do we struggle with this? God's purpose for your life is a great project. You can accomplish it because God can accomplish it. And look at what it says in verse 16. All the surrounding nations were terrified, were afraid, and lost their their self-confidence. Literally, their knees were shaking is what it says. Look at the last one. Not only what has God done, but what can God do in me? You see, after you have decided what God has done, God will do it through you. And this is what God can do in you. He can take a cupbearer. He can take a a food taster. He can take someone who is the last person you'd ever imagine and make him the leader of thousands. God can do in you and through you things that you can't even dream of right now. Satan loves to remind us the task is too big, that it's too hard, we're too weak, it's impossible. And in our own strength, that's true. God offers to walk us through the the worst of times. Did you get that? Why didn't God just take out Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem? Why didn't God just eliminate them from the scene? He could have done that. God never said to Nehemiah, you're not going to face opposition. Even when the wall was done, the opposition did not quit. But God never said to them, it's going to go away. What God promised them is that he would walk with them. He would be there. Micah 6.8, I love this. 
He showed you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Huge projects. Build a castle. Build a wall. Build a... Is that what he says? No. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I ran across this verse again. It's one of my favorites. Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. And then it goes on to say, He will take great delight in you, and He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Did you get that? God delights in you. God sings over you. I mean, that's the picture. We have all these new babies coming into the church, and we love the new babies. We, we praise the Lord. We got the, we got the mom's room fixed up just in time so moms could come up with these new babies and be up there and, and not have to worry about that. We love that we have a room set up for them. But I love to see a mom begin to sing. I was talking with Dorothy Taylor this morning. She says, I can't believe Hank. He's a good dad. He knows how to change diapers. You shouldn't be shocked at that. Well, yeah, maybe you should. We have this, this peace officer, this police officer, this sheriff's officer who knows how to change diapers, and he's good with the baby, and he can settle the baby down. And sometimes we sing off tune, but we sing over these little babies, and it's a picture of God taking us at our worst when we're the messiest, when we're the, most, the loudest, most obnoxious, and he sings over us, and he loves us. Sometimes you just need to ask the right question. There was a a man by the name of Edwin, 45, 50 years ago. Edwin had two, passenger, uh, two uh, passions in his life. One of them was photography, and the other one was his daughter. She was three years old at the time. And he loved to take pictures of, of his little daughter. And, and this three-year-old just, I mean, he would take pictures inside and outside, and, and she, would, she would just, for some reason, she would just stand there and take it. She would sit, and she would pose, and he just loved her, and, and, he, just, and, 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 and he would take pictures when she was sleeping at night. He would take pictures when she woke up in the morning. He just loved to take pictures of her. And finally, one day, this little three-year-old looked up at her daddy, and she said, I want to see the pictures. And he says, oh, honey, we have to develop the pictures, and then, you know, when, once we've developed the film, then we print the pictures, and... and And she said, Daddy, why do I have to wait to see the picture? And Edwin Land decided she shouldn't have to. And he came up with a little camera called the Polaroid Land Camera. And somebody said to him, what was it that made you so creative to do that? He says it wasn't creativity. It was love. I didn't want to disappoint my daughter. And our God loves us so much that he would do anything to show that love, to delight in us, and to use us, use us as part of his plan. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I don't know where you are this Labor Day weekend, where you are spiritually. Uh, I don't know if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. I don't know what you know. I don't know if you're going through the toughest trial that you have ever imagined you could go through. I don't know if your life is singing along with success. But the one question you need to ask is, 
do you know Jesus? You notice I didn't say, do you have a church? I didn't say, are you religious? I'm asking if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, you know the hearts of every person here. And I pray if there's someone here today who doesn't know Jesus Christ, they will stop. I'll come and sit on one of these chairs in the front, Father, and, and let someone just pray with them. Show them a couple of scriptures. Talk to them about what it means that Jesus died on the cross in their place. What it means to have a relationship with the God of eternity. What it means to know you and to love you and to trust you and to have a new life in you. Father, for those of us who came into that relationship some time ago, ask, help us to ask the right questions. Lay on our hearts those things that we need to know today to be the people of God you've called us to be. To realize that you sing over us, you delight in us to walk humbly with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a closing song. As we sing that closing song, just a chorus, a couple, a couple of choruses. It's not going to be long. If you have a spiritual need, you can come and sit on any of these chairs in the front. We have Jackie and Steve wave at us. They're the deacon and his wife, and they're going to come and just pray with you. They're not going to ask you to join the church. They're just going to ask if you want to join the family of God. They're just going to pray with you if you have a spiritual need. If you have a need today, as we sing, come.